This morning we are finishing up Romans chapter 4. And so we will be looking specifically at verses 13 through verses 25 this morning. Hear now the word of the Lord. The same word of which the Lord says, Heaven and earth may pass away, but my words will never pass away. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, Faith is null and the promise is void, for the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Let's pray. Gracious God, we bow before you another Sunday morning. God, we know that the week is just, it can bring lots of things, anxiety, stress, worldliness. Father, we pray that by your Spirit and by your Spirit working in and through this Word that you would break through all of these things that may be clouding our mind, that might be preventing us from setting our minds on things above. And we ask humbly that you would speak to our hearts. Father, please speak to us about who you really are and about who we are and about how we should live in this world and how we can respond to this revelation which you have given to us for our benefit. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' name alone. Amen. Who do you trust? All of you here probably have many friends and acquaintances but which of them do you trust? All of them, some of them, none of them? Trust is an important matter. If you trust the wrong person, you might find yourself in a world of trouble. I used to always get emails from 
Egyptian and African princes, supposedly, telling me they wanted to give me large sums of money, hundreds of thousands of dollars even, that all I needed to do was send them my social security number and my banking information. You know, was that a trustworthy source? Probably not. But trust can be gained, it can be lost, it can be tested. When the preacher says, and in conclusion, you anticipate that he's going to bring the ship to shore. But when he goes on for another 10, 15 minutes, then your trust is tested, isn't it? Now, it's kind of a small issue, but what about the big issues? Who do you trust with your life? Who do you trust to direct your life? Who do you trust your eternal destiny to? We know we should trust God, but does God give us any reason to trust him? Just as Satan inquired of the Lord, does Job fear God for no reason? We can ask if we wanted to play the devil's advocate for a moment. Does Abraham, do we trust God for no reason? Now, as I've been saying, and as I said last week, Abraham is sort of the pattern for us New Testament Christians when it comes to faith and what it looks like. And so we want to see what Abraham has found out concerning God in order that we might see that there really are reasons for us to trust in God. Now, firstly, we should trust God because he meets us in his promises. We should trust God because he meets us in his promises. So here the scripture really drills down deeply into this matter of Abraham's faith. And right away, we're confronted with these two principles, promise on the one hand and law on the other, faith on the one hand and works on the other. And the point being made here is that these two principles cannot coexist with one another. They are mutually exclusive. They clash, they conflict, they're incompatible as ways to be reconciled to God. And when you look at it, it really does make sense. These two things, law and promise, produce two entirely different results. So what does the law bring? According to verse 15, the law brings wrath. The law brings wrath. Sinners violate God's law, and the final consequence is everlasting destruction. The law, in other words, does not bring grace. If it did, then what would be the point of faith? This is why the word of God concludes, that is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. So the law brings wrath. Well, what about divine promise? What does divine promise bring? And after all, what is a promise? The Puritan William Spurstone defined a promise in this way. It is a declaration of God's will wherein he signifies what particular good things he will freely bestow and the evils that he will remove. God's letting us know what he will bestow and what evils he will remove. Another Puritan, Andrew Gray, defines a promise, especially God's promise, as a glorious discovery of the good will of God towards sinners and, moreover, a purpose and intention 
and, if we may say, an engagement to bestow some spiritual or temporal good upon them. And a promise, God is the one who holds up and describes the good, the benefit which he will bestow upon us. And God is the one who brings that to pass, obligating nobody but himself. Not obligating us to bring the promise to pass, obligating himself to bring the promise to pass. And this is because our God is a God of promise. And notice the thing promised to Abraham here. The Word of God says that uh, the promise that Abraham was received was one uh, that said that Abraham would be the heir of the world, or that Abraham would be heir of the world. And what's interesting, when you read through the narrative of Abraham in the book of Genesis, is that you do discover that there is a promise of a seed. You see that there's a, a promise that the nations would be blessed in him. You see that there's a promise that he and his descendants would inherit the land of Canaan, but there's no promise that he would inherit the world. And what, what's happening here is that Paul is bringing out for us the full implications of the promises to Abraham in light of the gospel, namely that the promised seed who is Christ and all of those united to that seed would inherit the new heavens and the new earth. Psalm 2.8 says concerning Jesus, this is God the Father speaking to the Son in the Old Testament. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. And what does Jesus tell us in the Beatitudes? Blessed are the meek. Why? For they will inherit the earth for they will inherit the earth maybe we're thinking though ah okay you know that sounds nice from maybe where we are you know in redemptive history after the cross but should we really believe that abraham anticipated the new world in these promises about canaan well yes even in the old testament our father Abraham anticipated the things of the age to come. Canaan, after all, was a, a type or it was a foreshadowing of the new heavens and the new earth. The whole time it pointed forward to something greater and something more glorious than a piece of real estate on this present earth. We see that. Hebrews 11 says, By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And if we are in Christ, then we also have this same promise, this promise from God that we will on the last day inherit the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness dwells, where God dwells, where the holy angels dwell, where the saints of God also dwell. Like Abraham before us, let us also look forward to that city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And we also see that in this, God is so good. When others break their promise to us, when we break our promises to others, when all around us we see the world is breaking their promises to one another, and we see the consequences of broken promises, God meets us in his free and certain 
and unfailing promises. And this is one reason why we can trust in God, why we can rely on Him, namely because He meets us in His promises. But this isn't the only reason why we should trust God. We should also trust God because He meets us in His power. We should trust God because He meets us in His promises, but we should also trust God because He meets us in His power. When we offer up our trust towards someone or something, I think we can all agree that it's wise to know something about that person or thing, right? You don't pick a spouse or a job or college, you know, without knowing something about these things first. And in verse 17, we receive some revelation about the God Abraham believed in, which is also very, very useful to us in our own walk of faith. We hear that the inheritance is guaranteed to all of Abraham's offspring, quote, in the presence of the God in whom he believed who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Who is Abraham's God? Who is our God? He is the God who gives life to the dead and calls those things into existence that do not yet exist. We're talking about God's power here. We're talking about God's power. What do we mean by God's power? Well, maybe briefly, summarily, we could say that God's power is his inherent strength, or rather the inherent strength and ability that belongs to his nature, whereby he can bring to pass whatsoever thing he will. An inherent strength and ability in God's nature that makes it so that he can bring to pass whatsoever thing he will whether that be a leaf falling from a tree or the creation of a new world. It is all because of God's power. And just as God is all wise, so his power is always exercised in infinite wisdom. And just as he is perfectly just, so his power is never used for corrupt ends as in the world of men. And just as he is good, so his power is always directed towards good purposes. And God's power is so great that through it he can even raise the dead. Now, as God's image bears, we also possess a finite, you know, or a limited quantity of power. I can lift a case of water bottles, or I can throw a football across the parking lot, but I can't refill an, you know, a an empty water bottle by speaking water into existence, you know, and that it would go into that water bottle. I can't fill a football stadium full of footballs, you know, on a whim. I have, we all have great limitations, nor do I have the power to raise somebody from the dead. We have a certain likeness to God, but there's also this infinite qualitative distinction between us and God that we have to respect. And verse 19 says that Abraham's body at the age of about a hundred was as good as dead. His body was as good as dead, especially with respect to the prospect of having a son. And the same can be said for Sarah's womb, which was barren when they received the promise that they would have a child. But here's the thing, that's no problem for God because God, as we heard, is the God who gives life to the dead 
and calls into existence the things that do not exist. So how does Abraham respond? How does he respond to these promises for a child when his body was as good as dead? The Word of God says that he believed, or rather in hope he believed against hope. In hope he believed against hope. Now this is kind of an enigmatic statement, isn't it? What's going on here? In hope he believed against hope. This second hope, this hope he hoped against is what you can call earthly hope or temporal hope. It's hope that's defined by an earthly understanding of what is possible in this world. It's hope that will only go as far as human reason will go. It's the kind of hope that laughs in the face of the promises of God because it finds these promises absurd and unreasonable and impossible. God's going to give you a child at your age? Just as at Pentecost, the church was accused of being drunk when they proclaimed the works of God in foreign tongues, so we today are accused of being drunk with naivety when we believe the promises of God. And so what about this other hope? Uh, this first hope, then, in the saying, in hope, he believed against hope is a biblical hope. It's a hope that's, that isn't limited by earthly conceptions of what's possible because it firmly believes that with God, all things are possible. Abraham didn't focus on what others might think. He didn't consider how crazy it sounded. He didn't try to tone down the supernatural element in the promised to make it more appealing and palatable for natural reason. Instead, he, in hope, believed against hope. In hope, he believed against hope. The Word of God says, No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Now, a few applications follow from this. First, when we unwaveringly exercise faith in the Word of God, just as Abraham did, we give glory to God. So I ask, do you wish to please the Lord? Then believe His Word, the Word of God written, the Word of God preached, and the word of God incarnate. This is honoring to the Lord. Next, be, be in prayer for this kind of faith, this kind of faith that's convinced that God is able to do exactly what he has said that he will do. Paul tells the church in Colossae, in Colossians 4, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. This kind of faith, this kind of trust and reliance upon God and his promises is not something we have by nature. It's something supernatural. And even if we have it, we need God's grace and we need his strength so that it might remain strong. And so 
we need to be in prayer for ourselves and for others that God would provide, replenish, and strengthen this confidence in his word. Now, I don't want to be misunderstood. I'm not saying we need to pray, otherwise this faith, this true faith we have is going to be lost. You know, if God has given us faith, if we have truly exercised faith, we have that seed of faith that abides in us forever. Um, but it's, it's also true that, you know, if we neglect prayer, if we neglect the means of grace, if we neglect, you know, scripture, you know, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, um, things like this, that, you know, that faith can become dim and, uh, you know, we can be susceptible to all kinds of temptations and misunderstandings about who God is and who we are. And so when we pray, God meets us and he strengthens and replenishes that faith. And thirdly, based on the power of God, believe in the promises of God. Based on the power of God, believe in the promises of God. What are you believing God for? What is it that you are continually returning to God in prayer for? I'm here to tell you that God is able, God is able to meet that need. Don't doubt that he can provide for your family. Don't doubt that he has your future in his hands. Don't doubt that he has your children's future in his hands. Don't doubt that he can use your setbacks and your sufferings for your good and for his glory. If God can raise the dead and call into existence the things that do not exist, then be assured that God will take care of you. He is able and he is willing. And we learn that because we learned about God's power, that it is infinite. And we see examples of that in Abraham's own life. Now, finally, okay, so we looked at that we should trust God because he meets us in his promise. Then we looked at the fact that we can trust God because he meets us in his power. And finally, we should trust God because he meets us in his pardon, because he meets us in his pardon. And our last point kind of revolves around the last few verses in Romans chapter 4, beginning in verse... 22. That is why his faith, Abraham's faith, was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. It would have been a real treat to hear the Apostle Paul preach some Sunday morning in the first century. And here, though, we see something of his pastoral concern for the church. He's just finished describing rich theological and historical truths from the scripture, and he ends by bringing things back to his audience, letting the Romans know and letting us know that these matters were written for our spiritual benefit as well. It's not just that the history of Abraham is true. We affirm that. And it's not just that Paul's doctrine of justification by faith has its roots in the Old Testament. We affirm that. But he's careful to include that we too can be saved after the pattern of Abraham 
our forefather in the faith. And just as Abraham's faith rested in God and in his promises, so does ours, though we have a clearer sight and vision for what these promises uh, are and what they ultimately point toward. If Abraham's sight of the gospel can be compared to someone watching a tiny black and white TV with two or three channels, our side of it can be compared to someone watching a big screen, high definition TV with surround sound with hundreds of channels, you know, where the, the channels equal all the different promises of God in the New Testament, as well as all of the promises of God in the Old Testament seen in light of the New Testament. And in this gospel revelation, we receive this side of the cross. We clearly see that God meets us with his pardon. This pardon that comes through God offering up his beloved son to die on a cross. A few chapters later in chapter 8, we hear that God is he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. God gave Christ up so that our sins might be atoned for. And God raised him up, which was the crown of Christ's saving work, so that our justification might be certain and sealed. Christ's resurrection guarantees our eternal protection. Christ's resurrection assures and guarantees our eternal protection. So, this week, brothers and sisters, may God's promise to you, may God's power for you, and may God's pardon for you be the lens through which you see all things. And if you hear nothing else this morning, hear this. Our God is a promising God. Our God is a powerful God, and our God is a pardoning God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, we thank you that you meet us in your grace, that you give us your very self, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We thank you for these truths which we have been able to hear about this morning from the book of Romans we pray that you would cause to increase in our hearts our faith. God, that we might look to you in simple trust for our salvation and even for all of the seemingly small things in life. And even the things that seem big to us, the things that give anxiety to us, the things that stress us out, those things which cause doubts in our hearts and our minds. Help us to see in Abraham an example, and a pattern, but also that in these words we have good reason, at least three very good reasons, to offer trust to you, our great God and Savior. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.